God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Rez. My name is Father Jonathan Warren Pagan. I'm one of the assisting priests here. And I want to welcome you all in the name of Jesus on this fifth Sunday of Eastertide. I especially want to welcome you if you're a guest here this morning. Very much welcome to you. And, uh, and if you're new to Anglicanism, you might be thinking to yourself, um, how is it possible that it's still Easter? <laughs> Easter is by far the longest season in the church calendar, reflecting the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is at the very center of our faith. It's meant to be this prolonged season of celebration, glorying in the fact that death is no longer the universal sovereign. Jesus has dethroned death. He has dethroned the power of death over us. We have been liberated to live as if death no longer controls our future because it doesn't. Death doesn't control our destiny. Jesus controls our destiny. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades as Revelation 1 says. And when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, we will all get up from the earth in the bodies in which we have lived. Bodies that have been transfigured and put on divine life just as his has. Bodies which have thrown off the shackles of death, just as his has. It's not just your soul that matters. That's what Easter tells us. Your body is essential to who you are. And Jesus is Lord, not just of your soul, but of your body as well. The Orthodox theologian Jean-Claude Lachey says, Original, authentic Christianity is, by its very nature, the one religion that values the body most of all. In Christianity, we have, and this is Larche again, a conception of the human person as composed inextricably of soul and body, and who thus does not simply have a body, but is in part a body. And Jesus is not going to just raise your soul. He is going to raise your body. We have to sit with this fact. We have to let this fact reverberate back on the lives that we're living now. And how else are we going to do that unless we let this fact have its stamp on the way we live our time? That's why we celebrate for 50 days, friends. That's worth celebrating for 50 days. Am I right? Amen? Okay, but most of us, though, that's right. That's right. From the mouths of babes, right? That's what I'm saying. But look, most of us, if we're, if we're honest, we have some difficulty celebrating for like three days, much less 50 days. We have, celebrate, we have difficulty celebrating the whole, like, 12 days of Christmas, much less the 50 days of Easter tie, right? Mother Tish recently wrote in the New York Times that it's, it's much more difficult to celebrate for 50 days than it is to fast for 40. And Andy Crouch, who's a friend of ours, has written, we are unaccustomed to prolonged joy. It is hard to celebrate for this long. And it's not just because some of us are as Mother Tish also wrote in the New York Times, melancholy people who like to listen to what Barry in High Fidelity calls sad bastard music. It's not just a personality thing that makes it difficult to celebrate for this long. It's also in part because joy in this life is rarely, if ever, untouched by sorrow and difficulty and worry and anxiety. Do you know what I mean by that? We try to celebrate, we get going, and then we get hit by yet another thing. It's like, why, Jesus? Why is it never just unalloyed joy? As Tish puts it, on this side of the resurrection, love and loss are intertwined like a double helix. You cannot disentangle them. And if you're like me, you want to ask the question to Jesus, why? Why is it like this? 
if Christ has conquered death, why do we not see the victory on full display? Why are we still so profoundly troubled by violence and war and oppression, by depression and despair, by meaninglessness, in short, by all the effects of death's continuing rule over this world? Why do we have to hear this weekend about another troubled young man in Buffalo writing a white supremacist manifesto and shooting up a grocery store in a predominantly African-American neighborhood? Leaving children without parents and, children and parents bereft of children. Why do we have to keep hearing about that? Why does Jesus make us wait? And why do the scriptures exhort us over and over again to wait patiently under the crosses we bear week in and week out? Why does Jesus seemingly leave us alone to work all this out by ourselves? There is so much pain in this room today. So much that is unresolved and will be unresolved until the resurrection. We have to be content with partial answers until we can pose our questions to Jesus directly. And my friends, what a glorious day that is going to be. It's going to be a glorious day when we can sit with Jesus around a table and ask him why. And I'm persuaded that when we sit with him around that table, what will be in our hearts is not bitterness, but joy. It will be laughter. The wine of the resurrection will be flowing abundantly and our hearts will be filled with dreams, just like the prophet Joel says. Because Jesus will fill us and fill us and fill us with joy and presence and light until we are overflowing, until the resurrection life has made us tipsy and giddy with joy. He will not let us say a word or ask a question until he has filled us so much with joy and life and abundance that we are laughing with him. We will not be permitted to ask him why until he has shown us the unbelievable, overpowering goodness of resurrection life. And then, from that place, we will be permitted to ask, why, Lord? But I want to stress this. Even though we have to wait for full answers in eternity, we are not completely in the dark now. Even though we are called to live by faith, and not by sight, we are not without resources to let us understand why Jesus lets us suffer from death's continuing reign and why he makes us wait until the end. In his word, Jesus gives us handholds or crags, not only to hold on to, but to flourish from in this life. And I want to look at two of the crags that Jesus gives us in John's gospel passage for today. Specifically, in his command to love one another. Jesus tells, us, tells his disciples in this passage that he's going away and that they cannot follow him. And if you keep reading, Peter's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? I'm coming to wherever you're going, right? Jesus is like, no, you're not. You will be here. I'm going away and you cannot follow me. And then he gives them a new command that they must love one another. And he's telling them in this command two things that I want us to pay attention together to this morning. The first thing is that there's something that loving one another will do in the disciples and in us, in us who are his disciples as well. And secondly, there is something that it will accomplish in the world. So two things, what it accomplishes in us and then what it accomplishes in the world. So let's look at the first facet, what loving one another accomplishes in the disciples of Jesus. When he leaves us here, and he tells us that we must dedicate ourselves to loving one another. What Jesus is telling us is that what is wrong with us goes deeper than we suspect. What is wrong with us is not primarily ignorance. What is wrong with us is not that God is mad at us. Or that we have a debt to God that we need to work off. Like a prison sentence or something like that. 
What is wrong with us is less a matter of information than it is of formation. What is wrong with us is fundamentally that our hearts have become misshapen and bent and disordered. And what we need, therefore, is a kind of convalescence. The cure is the low, the long, slow work of God in us to restore and rehabilitate the most fundamental motivational structures of our hearts. And what Jesus does in giving us this new commandment is to show us how to participate in the work that needs to be done to cure us of the fatal illness that has befallen all of us. We need to unpack just a few things in this passage which are obscure if we're going to understand this first point. In the passage immediately before this one, Jesus has just conducted the Last Supper with the disciples. And Judas has gone out to betray him. And Jesus knows, knows this and has told him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then he turns to the disciples and tells them this. Now the Son has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. And if God has been glorified in him, then God will also glorify him in himself. And he will glorify him immediately. And you're like, what? <laughs> what are you saying, Jesus? But if you understand what Jesus is saying here, it's stunning. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to be glorified immediately. And what he means is by being crucified. What? Jesus is going to be glorified by being crucified? This is the central paradox of John's gospel. What looks like utter shame to the world, the crucifixion, is the glory of Jesus. Why does John think that something that is shameful in and of itself that is this painful, incredibly painful way to die that is putting forth to the entire world that you are the enemy of the most powerful empire on earth, therefore shaming you. How is that possible that that is Jesus' glory? Because in itself, the cross is horrible. And John understands that. It is ugly. It is brutal. It is shaming, painful murder. It's one of the worst and most degrading ways that humanity has ever devised to kill a person. What is glorious, though, is Jesus' reason for enduring it and his perseverance in enduring it. As the book of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What was the joy for which Jesus endured the cross? If you know the answer, shout it out. I want to hear y'all. What is the joy for which Jesus endured the cross? You! Me, all of us in this room, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the shame and the pain of the cross. It is the immense pleasure that Jesus has in seeing each and every person who has been reconciled to the Father through him in his completed work. That is the joy for which Jesus endured the cross. Amen? Okay. Y'all, that is worth celebrating 50 days. But we got to understand verse 34 in which Jesus gives the love commandment in light of what Jesus says here in verse 31. Jesus has loved us with an indescribable, indeed a divine form of love. Even when we were strangers and unlovely, Jesus died for us, scorning the shame and the pain of the cross to win us back from the power of death. What's really interesting is that speaking to the disciples here in verse 31, he uses the perfect tense. Now, I'm going to explain this in just a second. Wait for it. This is a grammatical point, but you've got to stay with me because it's important. The Son of Man has been glorified, not will be glorified. He hasn't been crucified yet, right? He's talking to the disciples before his crucifixion. Why is he saying that the Son of Man has been glorified? The perfect tense 
is action that is already completed. So Jesus is speaking of his glorification in the cross as having already happened, even though it hasn't yet already happened. So what he is doing is telling the disciples, look at the heart by which I will perfect this action. That is already here. Everything I am doing for you, it is because of the joy that I have in doing this for you and laying down my life for you. That love is already here. And therefore, look at what I am going to do for you and why I'm going to do it for you. And out of that infinite, indescribably deep well, love one another likewise. Love one another likewise so that you then come to look like me. Let me penetrate your heart so that from my heart you may love one another. Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a commentator on the Gospel of John, translates verse 34 this way. I think this is really illuminating. He says, I am giving you a fresh command. Have a heart for one another out of the resource of my heart for you. Like that, have a heart for one another. So I want to stress this point. This is not a trivial point. Jesus is not saying to the disciples, do something you're not morally capable of doing. No one can love like Jesus loves. That's why Jesus had to come and die. Not to be an example to follow primarily, but to be a source of power that we did not previously have. Jesus is not telling you, you suck, do better, be better at loving. He's not saying that to the disciples. Jesus is telling you, dwell in me because I am a power unlike any power you have ever seen. I am a gale force wind against the sin in yourself and in the world. If you cultivate attention to the love of Christ within you, it is an unstoppable force. As inevitable and incorrigible as water running against a rock. The love of Christ is the strongest of all things and there is nothing like it. So do not think to substitute your own feeble, paltry love for the love of Christ. That's a rookie mistake. Your job is not to drum up love for one another. We will never love one another unless we immerse ourselves utterly in the love of Jesus, which precedes and accompanies us all the way to heaven. Catherine of Siena, who's a famous Catholic saint, said, all the way to heaven is heaven because Christ said, I am the way. If we cultivate that attention to the love of Christ in our life, that is the way in which we will love Jesus and arrive in the shape of Jesus, transformed into his image and likeness to the resurrection. I think you probably know that there's multiple words for love in Greek, right? And this love with which we are to love one another is divine love, agape. Love one another not with our lesser loves, but with love that is first received from God and then given as a gift to one another. Feast on Jesus' love for you, and then out of that bottomless, inexhaustible well, love one another. And when your love for one another is running dry, feast again on the love of Jesus. There's no other solution here. If you find the well running dry, return to the source. And as we do this, we find slowly, imperceptibly, that our desires and loves are changing. Our feeble and paltry loves are being displaced and rerouted, reoriented by the divine love of Jesus. If we are disciples of Jesus, the Spirit is forming Christ in us, shaping and forming love that looks like Jesus' love in us. Our loves are taking a particular shape, a particular configuration that is set forth and stipulated by Jesus himself. And that is the first and major central reason why Jesus says we cannot, we cannot follow him yet. 
that work remains to be done in us. What most needs to change in all of us, we disciples who have apprenticed apprenticed ourselves to him, is the object of our love, the order of our love, and the intensity of our love. This is a work of a lifetime, a lifetime of testing, shaping, forming, and tempering us. That is painful, and it means that we have to endure so much that we would rather not face. But also, this is critical. Knowledge of this fact, that this is the work that has to be done, is the source of hope. Jesus will not bring us home to himself without also fitting us for an eternity with him. Learning how to embrace him by embracing those who Jesus has saved and is saving with us. The passage also gives us this important second reason why Jesus says we cannot follow him immediately. And that is the missional value of loving one another. Across church history and into the present day, Jesus has used all manner of things to make disciples. He's used visions. He's used the creation itself. He's used the proclamation of the gospel and personal evangelism and social justice and care for the poor. Jesus has used all of those things to make disciples of himself. But Jesus here tells us in no uncertain terms that the most important single way that disciples of Jesus to contribute to the kingdom moving forward in the world is one thing. What is it? Love one another. Amen? We have to love one another. That is the mission. And let's be honest. It is regularly more difficult to love Christians than it is to love the world. Am I right? I mean, Lord... It is really challenging to love believers, even in this room, whose politics or personal behavior or whatever is embarrassing to us or makes us mad. And what Jesus is saying here is, yep, that's the mission. I'm telling y'all to love one another. Love every single one of these sheep that it will not fall from my hands. God has given them all to me, and I put you all together in a single room so that you can love one another. And then you can show the world that it is possible to love across differences. It is possible to give yourself completely to another person that you think has reprobate political views. (laughs) Amen, brother. When the pagans see you loving that person, then they'll really see Jesus. What am I saying here? Let's get down to brass tacks. I'm not saying to pretend like anti-Christian sentiments or behavior are acceptable or that you shouldn't challenge sinful behavior. What I'm saying is that for Christians, the means are always, always, third third time, always as indispensable as the end itself. Amen. (laughs) Colossians 3, 12 through 13, this is what Paul says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, all of you holy and beloved in this room, God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, mercy, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever complaints you may have against each other. This is an extremely vulnerable position that Paul is asking us to adopt. If we rebuke each other, and Paul was no stranger to rebuking people, do so with compassion, mercy, humility, gentleness, and patience. What is Paul saying here? I think he's saying something along these lines. To be a Christian is always to be the mature adult in the room, no matter how anybody, especially other Christians, are acting. It is never acceptable for a Christian to own somebody or degrade someone who bears the image of God, especially someone in the household of faith. 
In the 4th century, the Bishop John Chrysostom said that when an outsider sees us ambitious for power and enslaved by the other passions, that means disordered emotions, he will remain more firmly fixed in his own beliefs. Indeed, we, we are responsible for their remaining in error. That's powerful. What is John saying there? My man Bishop John is saying the means are always, always, always as important as the ends in the mission of God. The love with which disciples love each other, as I mentioned, is not their own love. It is the love we have from Christ that we give to one another as a gift. And therefore, when we love with that kind of love, not with our own feeble and paltry loves, when we love with divine love, what the world sees is Jesus. Because the gift becomes visible in the way we love one another. So remember, we cannot drum this sacrificial love for one another up. It's a gift of grace that Jesus gives us. The author of this love is Jesus himself. So when the world sees us loving one another with this love, we are loving not with our own resources, but with God's resources. It's like a pleasing aroma or a fragrance that comes from us whenever we do this, which attracts the world, not to us, but to Jesus. Because it will be clear that it is not our feeble love, but the gift of the divine love of Jesus in us that is manifest in that love. Now, I think it's important for us to dwell on these reasons that Jesus gives us in his word as to why we can't immediately go and be with him, why we must patiently endure this world of troubles and sorrows rather than living immediately with him in the time of resurrection. Because the most important thing, this is the only one indispensable thing in the Christian life, is that we not lose heart, that we not despair. Basically, all manner of failure is tolerable in the Christian life except despair. If we despair, we no longer pursue or look to the love of Jesus that is within us. The most conspicuous characteristic of Christians is that we are meant to be people of joy. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing a community of disciples that has forgotten how to love one another. And as he recalls to them the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, What has happened to all of your joy? My friends, this Eastertide, I want you to glory in the resurrection of Jesus. That is your future. That is my future. That is our corporate future together. Death no longer commands our destinies. Death no longer writes our stories for us. We have been liberated. That is a cause for tremendous, unabated joy. This life which we live before the resurrection also really matters. It really matters because in this life, Jesus is transforming our deepest motivations and our deepest loves and making them look like his. That is what salvation and deliverance is all about. And as we love one another with this love, we are also participating in that salvation spreading to the boundaries of the earth. Amen? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.